Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning, Missio Day. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing well? Yeah, wonderful. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Missio Day. Uh, and this morning I have the delight of being able to, uh, to preach this morning out of 2 Corinthians chapter Five. So I'm really sorry uh, for the acrobatics here. Would you be willing to actually just to stand one more time with me as for the reading of the word of the Lord? Um, we do this together and in a belief that Jesus is here in this place. He's honored in the reading of scripture and the spirit is going to do a work in, in our midst. So if you have a, a Bible or an app, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If not, uh, it's on the screen as well. So let's read this um, together. I'll read it. When I'm done, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord and then you will say thanks be to God. Okay. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Today we're going to be continuing on in uh, our sermon series that we've called Unstuck. And the aim of this series has been to uh, sort of intentionally examine some of the ways in which we as a people can become stuck in, in cycles and modes of living that God is actually calling us in his grace out of and into something more as he forms us more and more into the likeness of Christ. So far we've talked about a number of things. We've talked about moving from isolation to living in belonging. We've talked about moving from distorted ways of thinking into Christ-mindedness. We've talked about moving from selective hearing in our lives to divine listening. And last week we talked about moving from false to true identity. And this Sunday I have the pleasure of talking about the subject of pursuing relational restoration. Namely, what does it look like for us to move from neglect to reconciled living in our interpersonal relationships in such a way that it points to the kingdom of God and what God is up to in the world. And so I acknowledge right up front that this is a series that kind of inherently each week has a topic to it that could be a series all on its own. So my intention this morning is not to do a a super exhaustive deep dive, but instead is just to simply share with you some of the things that I think that God has placed on my heart around this subject Hopefully, my prayer is that he would in some way rekindle our imaginations for what he's up to in these broken relationships in our lives. As a people, each with our own pasts that weave and wind through different kinds of heartache and pain, it's no doubt the case that there are many in this room, dare I venture to say all of us in this room, who have unreconciled relationships in our lives. As I say that, maybe a a person or a face comes to mind for you, someone that maybe you used to be close with, Someone from your past maybe hurt you deeply, was hurt by you. And either, either way, that relationship is now in shambles. Maybe the relationship is even non-existent. 
Well, this is so common for us. I think even more so than we realize. This brokenness is all over the place, not only in our culture, but even within the church, even within the lives of Christians and people who follow Jesus. And so what I want to ask this morning as we sort of land here is just what is the heart of God in all of this, in these broken relationships? How is it that God is calling us to, to posture our hearts and orient our minds toward these people, these individuals in our lives? You see, the reason that we're calling out neglect as the opposite of reconciled living is because I think when you really consider why restoration so often doesn't happen in our lives, it's, it's not the case that, that hatred or, or active disdain stands in the way most of the time. It, sometimes this is the case, but I think more often than not, if we really think about it, it's actually a neglect, a, a putting off of the hard work that would have to take place for us to see restoration in these places And I think in some way this makes sense, right? Because we live in a world where time is a commodity. And the thought of spending any amount of time on something as emotionally and spiritually taxing as seeking healing and broken relationships is, I think, something that we're trained to see as not necessarily worthwhile. It's just best to move on with life. So diving into the work of reconciliation in our relationships gets placed at the back of the shelf. Life happens. Other pursuits become more important, and then before we know it, those, those broken relationships, they get dusty, right? <laughs> the pain goes from what it was to something altogether different. It finds a home deeper in the confines of our hearts, and it festers. The words that were said begin to mingle with the ones that were never said. The actions never get dealt with that took place in the past, and the hurt fossilizes. And thus, the cycle of neglect just grows stronger and stronger, and at this point, the the thought of pursuing restoration in that relationship, digging all of that back up and sorting through it with the other, it just becomes too much to bear. And this is why I think the number one enemy to reconciliation in our lives, in broken relationships, isn't hatred or the harboring of ill will, necessarily. But more often than not, it's neglect. It's this underlying cycle of burying pain and just moving on. But but what if God is calling us to more? That's the question I want to ask this morning. What if God is calling us to not just become complacent or simply settle for that stagnation in our lives, but to do the hard work, to begin turning over those rocks and really truly pursuing healing in those relationships? And I did a lot of thinking on this question in my preparation, and as I did, the, the text that keeps coming to mind is the one that we just read together, 2 Corinthians 5. And I ask the question, just like, why is it that pursuing reconciliation is even, is even necessary, is even worthwhile? And you know, we just read it a moment ago, but you'll notice is in, the, in this part of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he's putting forth this grand vision of God for the reconciliation of all things. And in light of this vision of God, Paul's calling, and I believe our calling, is to go into, into the world and to proclaim, to carry this message of reconciliation to make it known in our words and in our actions that God is up to something so much bigger here, so much grander than anything we ever could have imagined. All things being brought together and made whole in the person of Jesus Christ. Shalom, peace, harmony. This is a stunning image for the world, isn't it? This is a stunning story that God is writing. God's heart for the world is reconciliation. And now in turn... He's given us the ministry of reconciliation to go out and not only proclaim the restoration between God and man, but to live in a world, to live it out in a world that's in dire need of seeing it 
and action. This is what God has charged us to do. This is what he's filled us with his spirit to go and do. And so I think any conversation about pursuing mending of broken relationships in our lives has to start right there. It has to start with the gospel. If we are a people who live in the world as a sort of first fruits of the kingdom of God, and we are, and if God's heart is bent toward the restoration of all things, then surely God is calling us to pursue restoration in our broken relationships. This is nothing short of kingdom work. Scott McKnight, he puts it this way in his book, A Community Called Atonement. As he talks about this dynamic, he says, the kingdom of God in short compass is the society in which the will of God is established to transform all of life. The kingdom of God is is more than what God is just doing within you, and more than his personal dynamic presence. It is what God is doing in this world through the community of faith for the redemptive plans of God, including what God is doing in you and in me. It transforms relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the world. So this morning as we continue on, I want to ask the next question, which is, so what does this look like? What are some of the key characteristics of a heart that's in pursuit of kingdom-shaped reconciliation? And I think the first characteristic of the pursuit of kingdom-shaped reconciliation is that it is marked by persistent and patient prayer. For many of us, there's a relationship or a conflict that comes to mind that you think, man, I'd love nothing more than to see healing take place in that relationship, but I just don't know where to begin. Maybe there's been years of baggage there. Maybe you've tried to start the work of restoration in that relationship and it's fallen flat more than once. So you think, man, is there something I should say? Is there something I should do? And I think the answer is that we begin with prayer. We begin with the willing acknowledgement that God alone is the one who brings shalom. He alone is the one who brings true and lasting restoration. For two people to leave their own self-interest aside and their pride behind in order to come to the table and to pursue forgiveness and healing and the rebuilding of trust could never, could never happen if it were not for the power of God. Amen? So at the core of this call to prayer lies that conviction, the conviction that true realized restoration is always, always, always a miraculous act of God. But this highlights, I think, what is often an immense challenge in the pursuit of reconciliation, which is the fact that it requires not one, but two willing parties, right? Two willing parties. This is a key distinction between the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Forgiveness is possible without repentance. It's possible for one to forgive another who's not seeking repentance for the wrong that they've done. Reconciliation, that's not the case. It's not possible without two willing parties. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily reestablish trust when it happens. Reconciliation does exactly that. For some of you in the room, you need to hear this this morning. The victim of heinous abuse may never feel called to, to reconcile with their abuser. Forgiveness, yes, but not necessarily reconciliation in this life. And that might be okay. And so when we do pursue restoration, there's a, I think in this truth, there's a liberating release, right? There's a release that we, that we lean into when we pray. To pray is to know that we're not the ones that are in control. We don't hold the gavel as judge over the heart and mind of another, another person. And thank God we don't. Thank God that it's not our job to stir 
the heart to repentance or to know the inner thoughts of the mind. To take this a step further, prayer is essential in the desire to restore relationship because as is often the case, the person on the other end of the unreconciled relationship, as I said, they might not have the desire to reconcile. They might not desire to open that door. And so what else could we do? What else is our calling in that situation but to commit ourselves to the stubborn act of prayer, to seeking the face of God and asking him to do what only he can do? And that prayer might take years. It might take years. Maybe it will never be answered in the way that we would have hoped. So there's that release there. But we have to pray. Or conversely, maybe that lack of desire to seek reconciliation is true of your own heart. Maybe there is animosity there. And to pray is, is an act of submission, a calling out to God that he would do a work in your own heart, in our own heart, and to soften our spirit. Prayer has an act for doing this, doesn't it? It has a knack for doing a work within our own hearts and our own minds, sometimes far more than we even expect when we begin the act of prayer. So often we pray in relation to somebody else and the, th- the conflict that we have with them. We tend to speak in terms of that person's faults, that they would recognize their faults. But instead, oftentimes, sometimes, prayer can act like a spotlight on our own blind spots, shining a light on those places of our own hearts that need to be reformed and transformed. And there's grace in this. The grace of God is there in that. Monsieur O'Day, may we be a people that never give up on the power of prayer. Would we resist the temptation to believe that the Christian life is about, about mustering up enough strength? If we would just give it enough willpower, that's the key to seeing these impossible places move forward. No. Would we be a people who hold fast to the truth it says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been stamped with the seal of the Holy Spirit. And we know that that alone, that he alone, is the source of our strength, of our endurance, and of our faith. One of my all-time favorite psalms is Psalm 18. Or psalm 18. Like many of the psalms, David is crying out in his distress to Yahweh. He's crying out to God in the face of the impossible situation. And what's God's response to David crying out in prayer? It says, starting in verse 7, Then the earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the mountains shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured forth from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty angelic being, he flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dark rain clouds. Then thick clouds shielded the brightness around him and rain, and rained down hail and burning coals. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded amid the hail and the burning coals. What an image. All in response to David's prayer. All in response to David crying out to God. I think there's a word here for us. As we pursue restoration in these broken relationships, as we begin with persistent, faithful prayer because we hold fast to this reality, to this promise that God not only hears us and has moved to action in response to our prayer, but he has great compassion on us. He sees and hears his children. So the first characteristic is is persistent, faithful prayer. But I think the second characteristic of the pursuit of kingdom-shaped reconciliation is that it is marked by a commitment to the hard work of true peacemaking. You may know the verse well in Matthew 
chapter 5, verse 9, where it says, where Jesus says to the crowd, he says, Blessed is the peacemaker, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. But in any conversation about conflict resolution, I think we have to take extra care to observe the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. This subtle shift in language might seem small, but it's, it's nothing but. There's actually a, a difference between these two things. Peacekeeping is, is the work of prevention, right? Just as a peacekeeping mission on the, the geopolitical front is to step in and to prevent conflict in a region, peacekeeping on the interpersonal relational front means simply preventing conflict from taking place there, preventing a blow-up, preventing difficult words from, from being said, even if they're necessary for true healing. In peacekeeping, the highest value is civility. It's calm. But this often leaves, leaves wounds unattended to. It causes them to, to fester. It doesn't deal with the root problem, but instead glosses over it with an easy out. Peacemaking, on the other hand, is something different. It takes great care to do the heavy lifting of really listening and drawing out the truth. It seeks to hear and even to speak the, the things that are hard because a peacemaker knows that without the truth, genuine abiding peace can never be had. At the core of the heart of the peacemaker is a deep, a deep longing to see the power of God take effect in the midst of a broken relationship, even if that means walking through fire. The peacemaker recognizes that oftentimes conflict is present in a relationship, and it's not just one of the two parties that have brought the offense. So often conflict is this dynamic thing that exists because of the contribution of both parties in that broken relationship. And so if this is true, if we seek to be peacemakers there, that do this hard work, then the posture of our hearts, I think, has to be one of a gentle willingness to listen, to draw it out, a willingness to see where we've done wrong and not become defensive, not to seek to make our perspective heard louder than the other, but to ask questions, to understand, to never put the process on a timer. But I think there's a, another side to this coin as well, and that is the need to honestly name the places that we ourselves have been hurt. For some, this is less of a challenge than others, but for some, this can be really hard to do. But in not doing this, in glossing over our own hurt for the sake of a quicker outcome, we run the risk of creating even deeper wounds. This is where the value of expediency can sometimes take precedence, precedence over the, the value of honesty, over the value of being thorough, turning over every rock. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, that feeling. I know I have where you walk away from a conversation and you say, man, I know we're, we're saying we're good. We're saying we're good, but, I, but there's so much more that needed to be said. There's so much more that needed to be addressed and dealt with this commitment to honesty is essential to the work of the peacemaker because it's inherently honoring to the humanity and to the dignity of the other. Which leads to the, the final characteristic that I'd like to submit to you this morning of the pursuit of kingdom-shaped restoration. And that is that it sees the other, it sees the other in light of their truest identity. As many of you know, uh, Jameson Allen pastored here at Missio Day for a number of years. Um, he's a mentor of mine. And he had this phrase that he would, he would use every so often, and it was so compelling to me. The phrase was an exhortation. It was an exhortation to tend to the presence of Christ. 
tend to the presence of Christ. And this has stuck with me in such a profound way, this idea of tending to Christ's presence, because we will often say and acknowledge that Jesus is present with us and to us by way of the Spirit. But how often does that really affect the way that we go about any given moment? How how often does that really affect and change the way that we see the other? And I think there's something here for us as we consider this topic of relational restoration. At the core of the pursuit of relational restoration is this belief, it has to be there, this belief that the other, the one who's on the other side of this brokenness, is deeply cherished by God. The other person is his beloved and is worthy of reconciliation, of healing, even in the eyes of God. That God is working in the person's life on the other end of this this broken relationship just as as much as he is in, in yours and in mine, and that that person is eternally valued, held, and loved. I think in part this is what Paul meant when at the beginning of our text he says that we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view in Christ, there's this sort of removal of a veil in the way that we see the other. That if we regarded them from a worldly point of view, they would be the enemy. But instead, we've been given the ability to see them in their truest light as someone who is deeply loved by God. As someone worthy of respect and decency and honor. And I think this is exactly what it means to tend to the presence of Christ in our unreconciled relationships. It means that we see that identity that they are God's beloved. We take notice and we treat them with the dignity that they deserve in all of it. As we enter into the hard conversations and begin to hear ways that we've maybe hurt, brought pain, let us tend to the presence of Christ by recognizing the identity of the other as the beloved of God. As we open up parts of our own hearts that maybe we've safeguarded for so long, As we take steps of faith and boldness to share our own pain and seek reconciliation, may we tend to the presence of Christ there in that place by remembering our own identity as being the beloved of God. You know, those who uh, preach and teach are often, uh, unfortunately, sometimes, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes they're they're viewed as sort of the the masters of the things that they speak on. Uh, But the truth is that on on every topic, and especially one like this, we are very much all in this together. Um, as I learned what the subject was that I'd be teaching on in this series, almost immediately, uh, the relationship that came to mind for me that's in need of, of reconciliation in my life is my relationship with my dad. I won't share too much from, uh, from the place of this context, but um, I feel compelled to share a little, a little bit with you. My, my dad has been incarcerated for about the last 14 years of my life. He has about half of that left to go for actions that that took place when I was just a a young kid, my teen years. I remember uh, this time in my life, though, around age 19 or 20 years old, I began to feel this pull on my heart. This pull in my heart began to grow in me. I hadn't had any relationship with him, as you can imagine. All the communication had ceased because of his incarceration, because of no contact orders and all the rest of it. But as I became an adult and began to kind of move on with my life, this, this pull grew and maybe, you know, the question of, like, when am I going to start pursuing, am I going to pursue a, a relationship with my dad? I had forgiven him for what had happened, but that doesn't bring closure. It doesn't bring closure and, and, a, and a togetherness 
a wholeness to that gaping hole that is our relationship. And so I began to, to feel the draw toward reconciliation, but life happened. I moved, I got a new job, I started having kids, a lot of kids. <laughs> I don't think anything that I was doing was, was wrong to wait, right? I felt a distinct freedom to that release that I talked about, a freedom to wait until the time was right. But at the same time, I knew that the more time went on, it wouldn't become any easier. The emotional load of it all wouldn't decrease really in any way. And so finally, about three years ago, I, I wrote my very first letter to my dad, telling him about my life, telling him about the ups and downs, and, and that I forgave him for what had happened. And I also told him that if he, he was game for it himself, that I'd be ready to start the process of, of building a relationship and seeking that, that reconciliation. And when you know it, just as I expected, the, that opened the floodgates. Just open the floodgates. As I begin to get letter after letter and email after email, I begin to get this feeling in my gut rather quickly that this was going to be a long and difficult process. This was not going to be easy. I didn't tell myself it would be easy, but I really began to get the senses. I began to see mental unhealth. So I began to see that the way he looks at the past is different than I do. The way he sees things is very different than the way I do. I remember after my first in-person visit with him on the drive home, it was about four hours away, I was by myself, just had this feeling, this sense of almost exhaustion, this overwhelming sense of exhaustion that as I, I thought about just how heavy this emotional and spiritual load was going to be, it was, it was almost overwhelming. It was apparent that there was a lot of things that we were going to have to work through that before I started this process, I just wasn't ready for it. And yet at the same time, at the same time, I felt an equally profound sense of calm, a feeling that God was not only with me in this difficult process, but that he saw the depths of my heart. He cared for me. He cared for my dad. And ultimately, if restoration was going to happen here, it would be by his strength and by his goodness and the pouring out of his spirit. And this has been good news for the last several years to me as I continue through this process. And I don't have any real like idea of where the trajectory of our relationship is going to be in five, ten years from now. I'm sure there's much more that's going to need to be dug up and dealt with. But I felt compelled to briefly share this little part of my life with you this morning as I land in this sermon. Just to say, I guess, one, we're together in this. You know, all of us or most of us have these broken relationships that we're crying out to God to heal and to mend. But more importantly, I shared this just to be able to testify to the faithfulness of God in my own life. I don't have it all figured out, and quite frankly, this is a, a process that I'm taking day by day, but God is good. God is good to us. He is faithful. He is kind. And I can see that, testify to it in what I've been through so far. And his heart is bent toward reconciliation. As I close this morning, I uh, acknowledge again that this is a topic that could be the subject of an entire sermon series, um, not just one, but my, my prayer is that God would do a work in each of our hearts and minds to stir our imaginations again for the power of reconciliation. And would we know that as we pursue reconciliation in each of our lives, that this will point the world ultimately, point the world toward the heart of God and his coming kingdom. Amen? Jesus, we give you thanks. 
just for this time that we can share together, we give you thanks for your word, for your heart for the world, God, that you are a reconciling God, that you are a restoring God. It can be so easy just to think that, that your vision for the world is, is that you would take some and escape somewhere else, God, and just, God, we rest again assured in the truth and the promise that you are making all things new. And so, God, would you let that do a work in our hearts? Would you form and mold and shape us as your people by way of your spirit to see all of the whole of our lives in light of this truth? God, you are making all things new. And so, Lord, I just pray for the one this morning who has that relationship that came to mind, that, that person that, that came to mind this morning. You say, man, I, either I've started that process and it's been really hard, I don't know where to go, or I haven't even begun it yet. Is it really worthwhile? Is this the time to begin to pursue this? Lord, would just they feel this, like, freedom to just begin with the act of prayer. Just begin with the act of seeking your face and asking for you to do a work in, in everybody's heart and mind in that relationship, God. We love you. We acknowledge that you are over all things, that you are Lord, and that you're in this place. God, as we continue in worship, would you just hear um, these sung words? Would they be um, just a, 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 a sweet aroma to you, God? We love you and we give you thanks for, for the ways that you're moving in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.